Um, I, I want us to think this morning in the context of uh, our last study in Hebrews. We spoke of in verses 14 and 15, sin and death are bondage. And we spoke of the context of that bondage. And we began to just briefly talk about uh, the hope in the sense of that bondage from this text. Uh, so that brings us to number two this morning. Christ broke the bondage of sin and death. Christ broke the bondage of sin and death. Letter A, Christ assumed flesh to be made like his brethren in all things. Christ assumed flesh to be made like his brethren in all things. In verse 16, it says, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Now there's a context there that's important. One is, is fallen angels will not be redeemed. And the Hebrews writer is telling us very plainly here that that is the case. That those angels which are fallen, uh, they will not be redeemed. There is not a hope of redemption for those angels. And he says, assuredly, he does not give help to angels. But he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Now, in one sense, if we left that statement alone, we could build some things off of it from other texts. But the Hebrews writer doesn't leave it as a standalone statement in the context that Christ gives help to the descendant of Abraham. How does he do that? How does he give help to the descendant of Abraham? Verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Now, all things includes a multiplicity of concepts. Uh, we've already talked about earlier that he was actually born of flesh and blood. Those are things we discussed uh, previously in the end of November. It was also discussed in a couple of sermons in December. And so I won't rehash all of that. But he was actually born of flesh and blood. And we see that uh, in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise also partook of the same. All right, so it was important that he did that, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. But it also is the sense and the importance of the perfection of Christ, not only in his person, uh, but in his work. He was walking on this earth in perfection. It's not just that he came to the earth. His death is very important, and we want to have uh, right consideration of that. So his birth, his death, those are important. But it's not as though after his birth and the time leading up to his death that nothing else mattered. His perfection mattered. This is how he's going to become a, a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God is that he himself will walk in obedience to his Father in everything. We need to remember the importance of Christ's active obedience. Re remember the importance of Christ's 
active obedience. Now, you may read some, uh, some writers and you may see them use a phrase like Christ's passive obedience and Christ's active obedience. And there's a difference between those two and it's an important difference. The passive obedience of Christ refers to his death on the cross, his crucifixion. Uh, he passively, in a sense, means that he laid himself out. All right, He bore the sins of his people. He willingly went to the cross. It's the passion of Christ, his suffering. This is his passive obedience. All right? The active obedience of Christ is that Christ lived the law of God perfectly on this earth. All the commands of God were lived perfectly by Christ on this earth. So when we speak of Christ's active obedience, we speak that it pertains to His living on this earth in perfect obedience to God's law. Passive obedience of Christ, referring to his crucifixion, that he willingly went and he willingly laid himself upon the altar in a sense. He became the sacrifice, once and only sacrifice for the sins of the people. The active obedience, though, is that he actively lived on this earth perfectly in accordance with the law of God. Now, in the last 30 or so years, uh, there's been a little bit of a, uh, I guess, a resurgence of this. There was a lot of discussion of this in, in the time of the Reformation and in the time of the post-Reformation of whether or not we actually need Christ's active obedience for salvation. And there were different... Uh, writers in the uh, medieval period, the following the medieval period, who would have questioned that. Um, and, you know, if you ever hear about the, uh, the awful, terrible Socinians, uh, you'll hear the writers rail against the Socinians. And this is one of the issues, and the Socinians had many, but this is one of the issues in the context of their thinking of uh, the law of God uh, the purpose of Christ's life is that, well, we didn't really need the active obedience of Christ. It was just enough that he came and died. He just went to the cross, he died, and that was enough, and he made remission for sin. And it begs the question, does God require such perfection, or is Christ's death on the cross enough to justify the elect by itself? Um, I would say to you that it's not enough that Christ died. It's important that he did, but it's not enough only that he died. Why? Well, I'm going to give a few reasons. Firstly, God himself is righteous and just, therefore he requires righteousness and justness. We have multiple places in Scripture that talk about the righteous God. That God is righteous in and of himself. We could go through just multiple, multiple scriptures. And I don't have time to do that this morning. So I encourage you, go home. Uh, you know, use your, your Bible software or your uh, Strong's Concordance or whatever you have. And look up the word righteous and righteousness and follow it through the scriptures. 
your Knave's topical Bible, whatever you may have at the house, and you'll see the Bible declares all over the Scripture that God is righteous, that He alone is holy, that He is pure, He is just. He's just in His being, He's just in His action, and He's just in His commands. There's nothing in the law of God that is wrong. God did not give one commandment in His Word that has any essence of wrongness to it because He in and of Himself has no wrongness in His essence. He is pure holiness. Not only does the Scripture declare to us the holiness of God, holy, 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 but it also declares to us that He requires Holiness, righteousness, justness is his requirement. Just to give you an example, you can turn to Exodus chapter 23. In a section of Exodus where the laws, the sundry laws are being put forth to the people of God... Um, in one of these places in chapter 23, verse 7, the command is given, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous. Why? For I will not acquit the guilty. God is saying from my, my being, I have the right to give a law because I'm holy. And when I give that law, it's to be obeyed. And I'm telling you here, do not kill the innocent. Why? For I will not acquit the guilty. Multiple theologians and scholars note that the Hebrew word here in the context that is often translated in, in some of your versions as acquit is also the word justify. For I will not justify the guilty. I cannot render one just who breaks my law, is what God is saying. I am just, I give just laws, and anyone that breaks my laws cannot be rendered just. This is also given in the context of Deuteronomy 10, 17, Proverbs 17, 15, and multiple other scriptures as well. Even the New Testament gives us this understanding, but also gives it in the context of the positive. What we've seen here is what we would consider to be the negative. I will not justify the guilty. I will not acquit the guilty who break my law. Well, in the New Testament, and we, we do see a little bit of this in the Old Testament as well, but this, was, this is a very prominent passage, and I want you to be aware of it and think of it this way if you have not. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, you can turn there if you'd like. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is coming to uh, or coming near the end of his life. In verse 7 of 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith, writing to Timothy. 
in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Now, notice the positivity there. In the future, Paul's assured of something here in his mind. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Ooh, that's a pretty big statement. Don't walk away from that. Paul is making a proclamation here that for all those in Christ Jesus, there is laid up for them the crown of righteousness. And he says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. God not only judges in the context of those who break his law, but he judges rightly in accordance with the context of his salvation through the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And he judges, he will give those who are in Christ a crown of righteousness. This is an award or a reward. That is given here. But it's not given because we in and of ourselves have been righteous. It is due to the righteousness of Christ. So we see both that which we would consider to be negative and positive. He requires righteousness and justness. The only way the reward can come is if the negative is dealt with. Well, secondly, God is just, therefore he may and can require obedience to his commands or law. He gave a law and required obedience of Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, we don't have to take a lot of time to turn there. We've read in Genesis a good bit in months previous. It's it's very plain in Genesis what was told to Adam and Eve, right? If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you you will die. He's giving them a law. He's giving them command. Do not eat of this tree. The negative consequence is if you eat of it, you will die. The implied positive is if you do not eat, you will live. We have to understand that God can require obedience to his commands. He's righteous in and of himself. Therefore, he gives these laws in and of his own righteousness and he can command that these laws be obeyed. You see, this is the problem with the way uh, the race of Adam works. They often think that they get to set the rules. We as humans naturally left to ourselves in the race of Adam think, well, I get to set my own rules. And we don't like it when somebody else starts to put rules on us. Just watch society, right? All the riots and all that kind of stuff that's gone on the last few years that went on in the 60s, the riots that have gone on in other times in history, the French Revolution. I mean, there's all kind of historical cases we can give where there's uprisings of people. What is that about? Somebody told me I had to do something and I didn't want to do it that way. 
right? That's really the essence of it. Now, we can debate whether some of those things were right or just, and they should, okay, fine, fair enough. But the basic value, the intrinsic basic value is somebody told me I had to do this and I didn't like it. That's in the nature and the race of Adam. God gave a law. Who is he? Not only to give me a law and command it, but command that I obey it. Who does he think he is? Some people are very thankful of the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrificial system and the idea of sacrifice. But from early on in the context of the people of Israel, it is made clear that the work of the sacrifice is not of the utmost importance. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. The sacrificial system is about our works. It's about the context of it. And if you take the sacrificial system wrongly, you will take it in a context that I'm performing a work, therefore I will be justified before God on the basis of my work. Look, God, I did the sacrifice. Samuel, speaking in the context to the king, says to him, basically, why didn't you obey? The importance here is not about the sacrifice. The importance is about your obedience. There's similar readings with some slight variation which occurs of this very passage in Psalm 40, 6 through 8, Hosea 6, 6, Micah 6 through 8, and also Jeremiah. Turn with me. Let's look at this. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 7 is at the temple gate and he's giving the word of the Lord. And remember, Jeremiah is a prophet who's having to speak to a hard-headed people. They will not bow the knee the way they're supposed to and they're continuing in their idol worship. And in verse 22 of chapter 7, it says, For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day. This is God through Jeremiah saying, I didn't speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. He says, when they came out of the land of Egypt, this is what I commanded them, saying, obey my voice. Now, to obey the voice of God is to obey His what? His command. When, it's the idea of God, although God doesn't have a mouth, 
It's giving us the context of God speaking a command. And when he speaks a command, that command is a law. Now, he may choose to deal with that law according to his purpose or his will, but he says, but this is what I commanded them saying, obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people and you will walk in all the way which I command you that it may be well with you. True enough, he commanded the sacrifices, but he also commanded them not to go and worship other idols. So they could do a proper sacrifice and then turn right around and do what else? And do what else? Sacrifice to idols. This is giving us the important context of obedience here. Obedience to God's command. We can consider this further even from the words of the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 10. You can turn to Luke chapter 10. Now, just for time's sake, I'm not giving you every portion of Scripture here. There's a lot of Scripture that could be gone through. I'm trying to move us to the point or or part of the point of the Hebrews writer. But the Lord Jesus, when confronted uh, with, you know, what is the greatest command uh, or commandment, He himself said, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then here in Luke 10, in verse 25, and a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. See, this is about obedience. The commands of God are about obedience. The problem for the lawyer was is he was not recognizing that he could not do this command in and of himself. Interestingly enough, note here that Jesus is putting the idea of love in the context of command. The word love to us has become willy-nilly. It can mean any number of things. And, and it's, mostly it's purely about emotion in our present culture. But here, the scripture and the way the Lord Jesus puts this in context says that loving the Lord your God is a part of obedience. Now, some people would just shirk at that idea. You're making love drudgery. No. Obedience is a part of the very idea of who God is, that we would obey Him. He commands us to love. Therefore, we should love. And love as he would. But furthermore, even the context of the idea of obedience. Do this and you will live. 
Well, he's bringing up a problem to the lawyer. Verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now Luke gives us a context from uh, the Lord Jesus. And, and you remember, this is revealed understanding to Luke being brought forward to us that the motive of the lawyer is put forward in verse 29 but wishing to justify himself. See, here's the problem with the heart of man. We want to justify ourselves. To justify ourselves means we want to either make or declare ourselves right before God by our own actions. The Lord Jesus is pointing out once again, just like he did in the Sermon on the Mount, that it is impossible for us to justify ourselves. Why? Because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. From our very natures, we are sinners. To have one molecule of sinfulness is to be unholy, unrighteous. To even have a sinful thought is to be unrighteous and unholy. If you've lusted after a woman in your heart, if you've lusted after a man in your heart, whom you were not married to, you've sinned. Just that thought. If you've deceived in your heart, you may not have carried out the deception, but you deceived in your mind, you worked out a plotted plan that you would... Think about deceiving someone in some particular way. You did it. I did it. I did it in my mind, but I did it. The Lord Jesus says, I'm not just. And from my very being, I cannot justify myself. Well, lastly, in this context... God is just and he required Christ to live perfectly obedient to his commands. Now he did this in order for Christ to be the merciful and faithful high priest. When we get back to the context of Hebrews chapter 2, how is he going to be a merciful and faithful high priest? Well, he has to live perfectly in obedience to all of God's commands. Galatians 3 I could go to, we could spend all kind of time in Romans this morning, uh, look at the context. What's the context of Romans 1, 18 and following? We've talked about it already in previous weeks, but what's the context of Romans 1, 18 and following? All right. The wrath of God on man's disobedience, and, and Paul calls it unrighteousness. God is righteous, man is unrighteous. Wrath is going to be poured out on man's unrighteousness. His unrighteousness is his disobedience to God's commands. This is the full context of Romans 1, 18 and following. We see that both Jew and Gentile alike 
are unrighteous. The Jew, although having the law of God in a special sense, is unrighteous. The Gentile, although he did not have the law of God in special revelation, he had it in conscience, in the context of it, living with it, and he did not obey it. And when he did not obey it, he was showing by nature the Gentile is even a sinner. So Jew and Gentile alike have both sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. Well, what, what hope is there? Well, Galatians wants to remind us, or Paul to the Galatians wants to remind us. Verse 10 of chapter 3, For as many as are of the works of the law or are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. If we don't live the law of God perfectly, then we're under a curse. Not one of us can live God's law perfectly and yet the standard is that we are supposed to live it perfectly or else we are under a curse. Look at Well, I'd, I don't want to read the whole section, but I guess he says now that one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There's a sense and understanding here is what Christ does is he removes the curse of the law. How does he remove the curse of the law? Well, it's not just in his death. Uh, one writer gave a, a good modern illustration. Uh, if a, a parent takes their child to the ice cream shop and uh, the parent says to the child, um, sit right here while I get your ice cream. You sit right here while I get your ice cream. And the child wanders off while the parent is getting the ice cream the child has been disobedient. If the parent catches the child and the child goes back and he sits down and he sits right there and the parent gives him the ice cream, has there actually been any redemption just because the child came back and sat down? There was actually nothing there to deal with the fact that the child did go. There was no punishment. The child just came, sat down, and the parents still gave them the ice cream. When you deal with disobedience, there's always punishment. 
for you and I, the context is, is that somebody has to pay the punishment. But how do they pay it? Do they simply pay it in the death? No, there has to be the positivity. The positivity of the law itself being lived out. And Christ is the only one who can ever do that. Galatians 5, 3. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Romans 2, 11 through 13 gives a similar case. I won't go there for time's sake. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 2. If Christ is going to be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things, before we even get to the context of to make propitiation for the sins of the people, the text also says, He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Why is the temptation even important if Christ's active obedience is not important? Why does it matter that Christ was tempted in the garden? There's no point in it. It doesn't matter. It's just something that happened, and then if his death is the only important thing, then he went and died. But the Scripture makes a pretty big deal out of the temptation of Christ. The Gospels give us an understanding of that temptation, that Jesus was tempted, and now the Hebrews writer says, He himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. How is he able to come to the aid of those who are tempted if he himself was not tempted and walked through the temptation perfectly? He obeyed the command of God positively in every way. We know this from Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Our hope of justification is not just built in the idea that Christ went to the cross and he suffered on the cross and he died and he was buried and raised again. But it's also built on the importance that Christ lived a perfect life. He was sinless. He went through temptation without sin. He positively not only did not break God's commands, but he loved God's commands and he lived them willingly. He even went so far as in assuming human flesh. The Hebrews writer tells us in verse 8 of chapter 5, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. It goes back to what Christ went through, not just on the cross, but he was suffering in this life. Having come in the flesh to walk around men and women like you and I and to be tempted by the very devil himself. People always want to talk about the devil made me do it. Jesus was act. The devil's not omnipresent, right? He can't be everywhere at once. But the devil actually, according to Scripture, tempted the Lord Jesus himself. He showed up. After the Lord Jesus had fasted 40 days in the wilderness and he was hungry, he showed up to tempt the Lord Jesus, to tempt him with earthly things and to tempt him in the context of the whole of his life And the Lord Jesus withstood that 
temptation. And he said, no, I will obey my father. I'm not even going to do it begrudgingly. I'm going to do it because I love my father. I love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength, and I will obey him. Some 25 years ago or so, there was a, a group of Presbyterians that began to bring back the idea of the active obedience of Christ as not necessary. And sadly, I think they missed the mark. I hope those men have come back around, but they missed the mark. We need Christ's active obedience. This is how he's merciful to us, is that he lived a life that you and I could not and would not live. He was suffering on this earth before he ever went to the cross because here he is as the very son of God having to deal with all these temptations around him and to walk among all of this unholiness around him and yet he did it mercifully. He did it kindly and graciously. He did it never being disobedient to his father. How amazing is that that he accomplished that? You and I don't accomplish those things even in very few hours a day. And when we do think we've accomplished it in a few hours a day, we're probably lying to ourselves. Well, and we see that in Scripture, don't we, Pat? This is what the Pharisees did for themselves. They started working out over time ways that they could put the law in the context that they felt like they could live it. Yeah. I agree, and I got Romans 5 here in my notes, but just time-wise, I couldn't go there. There's a whole, I mean, just spend some time thinking through Romans 5, but think through it in the context of the first four chapters. Remember, these letters, they're whole letters, and especially a letter like Romans, Paul is building, or Galatians too, he's building a whole theological idea here. He's giving us a, a, a construct of how to understand who Christ is and the importance of not only who he is, but what he did. And the importance of what he did is it certainly is in the death. It certainly is that. But it's also in his suffering before he ever got to the cross. And, and, and I think the Hebrews writer, and we noted this in Hebrews 2.18. We noted this a few weeks ago. Maybe this will be a reminder to you. It says, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. Jesus being tempted on this earth was a part of his suffering. I think that's what the Hebrews writer is saying, and there are multiple other authors that agree with me on that. We're looking at the importance of the merciful and faithful high priest, and his merciful and faithfulness is not just wrapped up, Lord willing, next week we'll get to the propitiation. 
But it's also wrapped up in his active obedience, not just his passive obedience. So I, I got to leave it there for right now, um, time-wise. Um, I'm actually going to finish on time, maybe. Okay. Let, let's close in prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, your mercy and kindness is great to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Please, Lord, help us not to forget what Christ has done in his perfect life and obedience to your command. and his perfect sacrificial death. May we rely on him alone for our salvation. And that through the work of the Spirit, we will engage in the works of our sanctification. We cannot simply call out to you and say thank you for your salvation and not be a people who are striving to grow in our understanding, knowledge, and obedience to your commands. By the power of your Spirit, will you deal with our souls, those who are believers? that we would trust Christ alone in the sense and the understanding of our salvation, but we would not give up striving against sin in our sanctification. We praise you that you save many by your grace through faith alone in Christ alone and nothing else that we cannot lay claim the salvation being of ourselves so that we will boast only in you, our one living true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All glory and honor be to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.